thanks to everyone for joining us tonight. We're uh, looking forward to uh, part two of uh, the philosophy session, The Matrix and Philosophy, presented by our, our good friend and colleague, uh, Usha Sister. In this two-part session, Usha Sister is exploring an iconic movie trilogy of our generation, The Matrix. The Matrix juxtaposes and synthesizes storytelling, philosophy, and cognitive science through the cinematic medium. Wisher will examine some of the philosophical underpinnings of the trilogy. In the second session, which we're thrilled you've all joined us for tonight, Wisher will look at the matrix through the lens of contemporary cognitive science and philosophy of mind, such as the brain in the vat argument and simulated reality, free will and freedom. I can see that Usha, sitting over there, is looking forward to examining the trilogy and philosophy in conjunction with everyone who's joined us tonight as participants in the discussion. Just a little bit about Usha before I hand over to her. Usha's sister is a learning and development professional. She has a PhD in cognitive neuroscience and masters in English as well as molecular biotechnology. Some of her key areas of interest are neurobiology of well-being and the behavioral and neurobiological underpinnings of deviant behavior. She is a voracious reader and also paints and dabbles with photography and filmmaking. Usher is contemplating on establishing a literary magazine. Usher, we're delighted to have you here tonight and you have an audience keen to hear from you. So over to you, Usher. Thanks, Akiva. Thanks, Les. Thank you all for joining us tonight. Welcome back, everyone who's joining us from the earlier session. Okay, so let's go into part two. As some, some of you have been asking in the discussion, part one is not a prerequisite to getting into this session. So if you missed earlier, it's all right. You're not going to miss out on this one. Okay, uh, before I start, I took some of the uh, conversation feedback that we had in the last session about mentioning a little more, a uh, little more about the movie and the the actual content itself. And I thought it would be interesting to look at the symbolism of various names mentioned in the movie and how that ties up with uh, philosophy, you know, as a big picture and a few different streams of philosophy as such. So let's start. So this is the symbolism of names in the first movie, The Matrix. Um, now, The Matrix itself refers to a situation or sur surrounding substance within which something else develops. So something like a womb, right? Now, the concept of The Matrix as an illusion or a construct that humans are unaware of resembles the idea of samsara in Buddhism and Hinduism. Samsara says that the world that we consider real is actually a projection of our own desires. And um, from Morpheus, Neo learns that how he perceived, in the, perceived himself in the matrix was simply a mental projection of his digital self. That's what Morpheus tells him. So according to Morpheus, the real sensory world is simply electrical signals interpreted by the brain. Now we'll have a lot more discussion on the samsara coming up. Now Neo and the Oracle, Neo in Latin means new. It's also an anagram of one. 
Thomas Anderson, Neo's given name, uh, is related to the doubting Thomas in the Bible when he doesn't really believe, he doubts that he is the one. Anderson also means son of man, which is a messianic title. Oracle in Greek history, as most of us would know, was an intermediary between God and man. So human, I would say, but most texts would still say man, doesn't matter to us. Uh, so people would go to the oracle, ask questions, sometimes get an answer. Very rarely did we get a straightforward answer from an oracle that wouldn't make sense when he or she makes the prediction, but only makes sense sometime in the future when whatever they've predicted comes to pass. Um, think of the oracle in, uh, if you've watched the movie 300, Think of the Oracle of Delphi over there. So where Leonidas goes up there to ask for advice on uh, getting the Oracle's blessing on the imminent attack that was coming from the Persians. Now, Trinity, Morpheus and Cypher are very interesting characters. Trinity refers to the number three. Uh, it's a very Christian uh, Trinity, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it's also a very Hindu uh, trinity where you have um, the, 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 the creator, the preserver, and the destroyer, which is Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. So there's another uh, one there. In, in the Matrix movies, of course, Morpheus, Trinity, and Neo are the trinity within the trinity that fight the machines. Morpheus means the fashioner or the molder because of the shapes he calls up before the sleeper in classical mythology. So he's the god of dreams, um, in some ways related to hypnos as well, which, which ties in with the sleep dream theme that pretty much runs throughout the trilogy, um, which again comes back to reality versus imagined reality versus perceived reality versus illusion. So all that ties up with Morpheus himself and the, everything he represents. Now, Cypher is the classic betrayer, the Judas. Um, it refers to a mathematical symbol, basically an absence of a quantity, a zero. But in this case, it also uh, is a metaphor for someone who has no value, who has a no entity, is a non-entity. Um, well, it's also potentially related to Satan. It's a shortened form of Lucifer. Um, and well, in keeping with that uh, symbolism and representation, Cypher has a goatee and wears red early in the, in the movie to retain that popular image of Satan. In the Matrix Reloaded, which is part two, there are other characters that come up with very, very strong mythological and philosophical references. Niobe was a female mythological character in the Iliad. Um, in that epic story, she is described as a woman who compares herself to a goddess. The Merovingian relates to an ancient, uh, the Merovingian dynasty, a Frankish dynasty whose members were attributed with saintliness magical powers and divine origin because they were believed to be the descendants of Christ. For those who have watched the Da Vinci Code, this will, uh, the, you, you'll be able to relate to it. Uh, 
Sophie is a Merovingian descendant of, of Christ, but through Mary Magdalene. Um, the other very famous uh, mythological character is Persephone, uh, who is in Greek mythology, the daughter of Demeter and Zeus. Hades abducts her, takes her to the underworld, but she's eventually allowed to return to the surface for a part of the year. So Demeter, her mother, in her grief, neglects her duties and becomes cold and barren. So Zeus allows Persephone to come home only for six months in a year so Demeter could be uh, appeased and she'd be happy to see her daughter. Um, so basically an explanation for a change in, a mythological explanation for a change in seasons. Um, but a, a, a very important character in the Matrix Reloaded is the Seraph. Um, so when analyzing the name Seraph, it's important to look at what the historical meaning is. So it's, it's from the Hebrew um, word for to burn. That's, that's the literal meaning of seraph. Now, seraphs were not really cute little Cupid-like angels flying around, uh, but they were literally on fire. Now, and they were in some ways uh, also related to divine vengeance. They would uh, come around when nemesis had to operate in order to you know, work out the divine will, but they necessarily were they were not evil, but they certainly were predictors of a, an evil or a difficult situation that needs resolving by you know, extreme uh, means. Now, because in the movie, uh, Neo sees um, uh, the seraph before they fight and uh, the seraph is, growing, is glowing gold as opposed to everything else in the movie, which is pretty, mu pretty much glowing neon green, right? And uh, well, not, it's just a reinforcer. They're not the cute little things that we see on the Sistine Chapel painted by Michelangelo. They're fiery, fearsome creatures. In the Matrix Revolutions, this is where it gets full Hindu pretty much entirely because you have straight direct references to uh, Hindu texts and Hindu names, gods and mythology. Now. Uh, we meet Sati's father, Ramakandra, in the train station. If you haven't seen the movies, it doesn't matter. You know, don't, don't worry, that uh, doesn't make much sense. Just focus on the names for the sake of this session. Um, and, but we first see Ramakandra in the Reloaded, in the Levrai restaurant. He's being hauled off in this scene. And this is somehow tied to his negotiation with the Merovingians to get Sati out of the mainframe. Um, in, in Hinduism, Ramakandra, is, it refers to Lord Rama and, uh, and this, this uh, reference to getting Sati, who is, um, well, another name for Lakshmi, which is the Hindu goddess of wealth and good fortune, who is the consort of Lord Vishnu as well. Uh, but Rama's reference is here straightforward because in the Ramayana, which is the Hindu epic, Rama's wife, Sita, is uh, abducted by Ravana, the king of the land of Lanka, which is present-day Sri Lanka. And Rama has to go down with an army and free her from um, Ra Ravana's clutches. So that's the reference to the negotiation that we see here. Um, and so 
just as a little extra, so Bernard White, who played uh, Ramakandra, told a magazine that he had a copy with the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, but, well, Bhagavad Gita has really nothing to do with either Ramayana or what happens to Rama and Sita. That's a completely different epic story. But uh, this is just a passing nod to the influence of um, non-Western mythologies and philosophies on the movie trilogy. Um, now, going back to the Western uh, mythologies, Club Hell is a direct reference to hell. And this is uh, the underworld where the Merovingians uh, like the Hades from Greek mythologies. Uh, so this, this is where Sati is abducted. So just like Sita is abducted by Ravana and taken to Lanka, Sati is abducted by these people and taken into Club Hell, which stands for hell. Um, yeah, and there's this very strong symbolism of music as well, which again ties back, and this is straight from the Upanishads. So Navras is a group that plays uh, over the closing credits of Matrix Revolutions, and the words of the main chant are from the Upanishads, uh, which I should say is what we used to chant at school every day. Every day in the morning before our classes started, we used to chant these Asatoma, this, these are Sanskrit, uh, Sanskrit verses. Asatoma Sadgamaya, Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya, Mrityorma Amritam Gamaya, Shanti Shanti Shantihi. So leaders from darkness to the light, leaders um, from the knowledge of the unreal to the knowledge of the real, uh, leaders from the fear of death to knowledge of our immortality. Peace, peace, peace. Small diversion there not unrelated, of course, is uh, the, the, the relationship of the image and the reality, which ties back to what we see in the movie as a dramatic narrative and the symbols and the various visuals uh, there. This is important because of the passing nod to um, Jean Baudrillard's book, Simulacra and Simulation, right at the beginning of the movie. Um, but basically, Baudrillard said he worked out a relation, he presented a relationship between an image and the reality it represents. Um, so he says in his book, it's no longer a question of imitation or duplication, nor even parody. It is a question of substituting the signs of the real for the real. And the image can be mistaken for the object itself. Now, the film directly addresses this uh, through Cypher, who chooses to leave the real world to once again experience the false pleasure of the matrix, illusory as they are. Um, and the devastated wasteland of Zion exists as a place of civilization survival and potential rebirth, while in, in, in some ways the false world of the matrix resembles at the height of decadence and power, it's a modern day Babylon. So we see that in, in just looking at the names mentioned in the movies, uh, we're dealing with a global mix of mythologies and philosophies all coming to play in, in some ways forming a matrix in itself. Um, now, which of these are real, unreal is irrelevant in some ways because they're all telling us a story and leaving the working out and the interpretation to us. Uh, and 
one last symbolism. I couldn't resist it actually. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, which which refers to the second Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Neo Babylonian uh, king mentioned in the Old Testament. He reigned from 605 to 562. He was a military campaigner. He was responsible for uh, the sack of Jerusalem and uh, the mass deportation of its uh, much of its citizenry. Now. The character Morpheus captains a hovercraft called the Nebuchadnezzar, uh, because in this case, of course, even though biblically uh, Nebuchadnezzar was uh, not a very good character, uh, the hovercraft becomes a Nebuchadnezzar here because its function is to sack the modern day decadent Babylon, which is the matrix in this case. And Morpheus is Daniel, which in, in the book of Daniel, Daniel is a seer who interprets the king's dreams and Morpheus, the ship's captain, interprets, um, well, reality, in, so to speak. And, uh, it's, it, and he says in the second film, uh, I dreamed a dream, but now that dream is gone from me. It's almost a straight uh, reference to Daniel, second chapter, third verse. And we'll go to the philosophy bit here, which basically relates to samsara. Now, before we go into the Hinduism, Buddhism thing, uh, so the mind body, and I'm drawing this largely from uh, studies, well, not studies, philosophy of mind uh, of David Chalmers and Andy Clark and Bostrom and all the others. And Chalmers simplified a lot of these uh, various streams of thought from philosophy of mind. So one of the hypotheses is that of the mind-body hypothesis, which basically says that my mind uh, is constituted by processes outside space-time and receives its inputs from and sends its uh, outputs to processes in physical space-time. So the mind per se doesn't exist within the framework of space-time, even though it processes uh, whatever comes from there, from the physical world and sends back its uh, output into that world, right? Now, the wheel of samsara, this is, a, it's antithetical to the Western mind uh, which has a very linear view of time as opposed to the cyclical view of time that's present in many traditions, not just Hinduism and Buddhism, but um, uh, Incan civilizations had a similar view of time. Native American traditions had a similar view of time. Various African religions have a cyclical view of time rather than a linear one, right? So, but the Western uh, time per se separates um, the self as something that exists between the birth and the death. Now, after death, there's no coming back um, and there's no great return. Now, the flow is not, the flow of life is not understood in terms of archetypes and symbols, but rather as um, singular events that happen at an instant in time, relegated to the past and completely lost, right? That's most of the traditional philosophies do not cater to that view of time. And a lot of original Western philosophies did not either, actually. 
uh, this the the picture here is a symbol of um, the Buddhist wheel of samsara. Now, I will just focus a little bit on the the central part, which is basically the snake rooster and pig symbols over there, which refer to craving aversion and delusion. To sort of explain further what samsara means in the the Hindu Buddhism traditions. Now. The, the three obscuring passions at the center of the wheel are basically the three ways in which we emotionally react to um, any sense object that, that are recognized by sensory perceptions, right? They're symbolized by a rooster, which, um, which, which refers to raga, a snake, which is dvesha, and these are all Sanskrit words, and a pig, which is moha. Now, raga is translated into English as lust, greed. In, in some ways, they are a subset of the seven cardinal sins that we have. But Hinduism, Buddhism does not consider human emotions. We, there is a very, very different concept of sin itself in Hinduism and Buddhism. It's not something that requires salvation, but it requires something that you can work out with your own practice. So. Even if the words are similar, the context is entirely different here. So raga is that last greed. The uh, uh, but it's it's also considered a positive reaction. So not nece not necessarily does it mean that it's it's sinful or bad or dangerous. So when we look at something and we judge it to be desirable as pleasant, then it we're attracted to it and we want it right it's the extremes that become the problem not not necessarily the emotion itself right because when you don't have it what you have is complete uninvolvement in world which is what a lot of clinical modern clinical psychiatry would call a certain symptom a certain symptom of depression where you cannot be engaged with anything in the world nothing attracts us at all um, and the other extreme, of course, is extreme greed. Dvesha is hatred, anger. Now, this is also not bad in and of itself because it keeps you from harm. Anything that we sense to threaten our sense of self, which is the ego, we want to push it away. And moha is sluggishness. And it's, it's indifference, a certain level of dullness or stupidity. Again, none of these are considered wrong on their own. It's only the context that determines whether they are bad or not. Um, and this is the crux of pretty much everything to do with Hinduism, Buddhism, and samsara, which is suffering. Now, no object, according to the wheel of life and the Hindu Buddhism concept of samsara, no object in this world can be experienced as it really is. Because before we reach the suchness, the essence of that object, we've already tainted it with our uh, egocentricity, which is basically our um, predisposition. We've, we, we don't come to anything with a blank slate and we develop our own attachment and aversion the moment we come into touch with anything, any object in the world. Now, now clinging to this sense of self, 
clinging to this um, attachment, then we seek to manipulate the external world because we want to reinforce our own sense of what we believe is right, what is true, what is uh, real. We see this uh, in hallucinations when we talk about uh, the, the clinical forms in, in schizophrenia, for example. They you cannot break them away from reality because that sense of reality is fixed for them, right? Those who see other people or auditory hallucinations. And if you break away, it leads to an inevitable sense of frustration because then you cannot piece back the worldview together. That's why you'd rather, going back to the matrix here, that's why you'd rather live with what you know sometimes is the unreal because the real is not something that you're able to work within your own worldview sometimes. Now, this condition, this predisposition is what Buddha led Buddha to proclaim the what's what we know, what we now call the first noble truth, which is samsara dukkha, which life is pain, life is suffering. That's the literal, but dukkha is not pain or suffering, it just means unyoked, it's untethered to reality. The, the, the pain and suffering itself is an emotional response because at some level we do know that what we believe is real versus what really is real is not in line. Now, everything is unyoked because we do not perceive the world as it really is. So now we want to solidify this ever-changing world into some form of meaning um, where we can cling on to a sense of this separateness. So this, this frustration that comes with, I am different and you are different, and that, that is believed to be, the sense of separation itself is believed to be one of the first, first uh, break with uh, understanding reality as is, because most of these traditions would say that there is no I, there is no you, and that itself is the biggest illusion, the separateness of I and you. And because at some level we know that, we're frustrated. And that's suffering. Um, I won't go into the last bit here because that leads back a lot into deep Buddhism. But going back uh, to the movie here, one of the key characters is the architect. So here we have the creation hype. We looked at the mind-body hypothesis and how that in some ways is linked to samsara. We're looking at the creation hypothesis here, which is what most uh, organized religious traditions would in some form or the other allude to, uh, which is that physical space, time, and its constituents were created by beings outside physical space, time, which is what is commonly referred to as God. God exists outside of space-time and yet has created everything, including the space-time itself. Now, in the movie, the architect is the God in some ways. He's the father of the matrix, going back to the Christian theology and um, symbolism here. So he is the entity from the machine world. He designs the original matrix, the failed one, and the current successful one. And the first matrix failed because it was perfect. In, um, in some ways, think of the Garden of Eden, 
it it failed it's a failure because everything was perfect you had to put a man a woman and a serpent in there to create the imperfect reality after that because humans well at least as far as the movie goes uh, are not accustomed to living in a perfect world and a perfect world is rejected by test subjects as being not real at all and the second matrix resembles the real world per se hard dirty death violence atrocities everything else uh, but actually this one also fails and a machine program looks into it and figures out that it failed because uh, it didn't have a lack it because it had there was no choice if humans were offered a choice then uh, over 99 percent of them would accept the matrix and live in the virtual world world rather than choose the other option because well this is the narrow straight path that keeps coming up in the bible the other option is the difficult option where you are now charged with facing reality which then comes to responsibility okay now that you know what's real what the hell are you going to do about it um and so the architect offers everyone uh, a door uh, you know a choice so behind door number one is a continued existence uh, of humanity and the other door leads to resistance. Now, it's it's interesting that behind door number one, uh, you know, there's uh, this version of the current version of Zion is destroyed and it takes um, and you have to choose 23 people to build the next version, which is actually a reference to the 23 chromosomes present in the haploid embryonic cells so 23 in an ovum and 23 in a sperm which when fused during fertilization lead to the diploid 46 chromosomes that are present in human beings all other cells uh in, in the single celled embryo which is the blueprint for us as we are every every individual human being now the third hypothesis is your computational hypothesis uh, which is that physics as we know it is not the fundamental level of reality. Chemical processes underlie biological processes, their microphysical properties underlying chemical processes, and there's something else underneath it. There are quarks and electrons. If, if you keep breaking subatomic particles, you will find further subatomic particles all the way down. And this hypothesis would say that these are all governed by some algorithm which at a higher level produces the processes that we think of as fundamental particles, forces, and, and so on. This is very closely related to uh, what integral philosophy, what Arthur Kosler actually uh, coined the term holons, um, and is the central tenet of integral philosophy that was worked out by Hegelian. Uh, and Hegel and Sri Aurobindo, of course, one of the frame framers of the philosophy ken wilber popularized it and uh, i will mention something about ken wilber and the makers of this movie towards the end of the talk uh, but the holons are basically both part and whole so it's the relationship between the parts and holes so they are self-reliant units that have a certain degree of independence can handle contingencies certain level of autonomy, but they also 
interact with each other and every part influences every other part. So, um, for example, you know, a, a, a pretty straightforward one would be any anything that has a hierarchy. So atomic structure, atoms, molecules, uh, molecules coming together in specific configurations to form specific elements that come together to form specific compounds, which then form pretty much the entire uh, you know, physical chemical universe. At the biological level, cells coming to, again, uh, well, atoms and molecules coming together to form something else entirely. You have a different hierarchy, a different organizational schematic where the, you have your cells which form your tissues, tissues then all group together, different kinds of cells, same atoms and molecules configuring themselves in different ways to form a completely different organizational structure for a completely different purpose, but everything is related to another. So a molecule includes all the, so every level up has all the properties of the levels below, but a little something more. So it's what's called include and transcend. Um, and you can use this example for this, this framework to understand. So according to integral philosophy, um, at, at some point, I should get down to writing that paper I've been writing for years about it, where every, every whole has parts and every part interacts with each other to form the larger whole. And it can go all the way up and go all the way down. It's a bottomless and a top. Uh, topless doesn't sound right, but there's, there's no ceiling. <laughs> To, to how far an organizational hierarchy can go. Um, leads us to the metaphysical hypothesis, and this is directly quoting David Chalmers here, that physical space-time and its contents were created by beings outside, but the microphysical processes are constituted by computational processes and are minds are outside physical time but interact with it so basically is bringing together all three of them so the space time was created by physical world as we know it is created by beings outside of the physical world but everything else exists within it but interacts with uh so the, the creator and the mind both exist outside but both of them interact with and are influenced by the physical world. That's uh, Chalmers' metaphysical hypothesis. I'm not sure I entirely agree, but I'll, I'll leave it to the discussion for everyone else to contribute though. Now, and he goes on to look at uh, the matrix as a metaphysical hypothesis, the matrix itself that he says that if I accept the me metaphysical hypothesis, uh, then I should accept the matrix hypothesis, in which case he means that the, the physical world in this case is the matrix, which is created by entities outside of the physical world, but the, the minds of the different beings that reside within the matrix are also outside of it, really, because everything else is illusory. The world itself is illusory, but everything interacts with each other and is influenced by it. That's That's, his view of the world in general and of uh, the matrix in particular.
Um, and yeah, I thought I would close with, um, no, there's a little bit more after this, a summary of both the movies per se, before and after Neo appears and all the drama unfolds. But I thought I'd also mention very quickly about um, this, this cyclical view of time when I said earlier about not just the Hindu Buddhism traditions, looking at it that way, uh, there's an indigenous Andean thought and Incan thought, which is called the Yanatan, uh, which has the polarities of existence, but uh, it's, it's very integral in its thinking, which is that you know, interdependent and essential parts of a harmon harmonious whole. And for the Incas as well, the past, present and future are ubiquitous in the same space and the same time. So for them conceptually, space is not objective. It's not real. It's not a substance. It's not matter is not matter. It's a subjective and idealized concept that originates through mental processes. Two sides of the world come up with pretty much with, well, historically no contact with each other in the Indian subcontinent and uh, Latin America, South America. They have pretty much similar views of what constitutes reality, uh, which of course Joseph Campbell explores in his The Masks of God series of books. It's another reference. I will put all these references up uh, in, in, the, in the meetup group. Anyway. Uh, to tie this back to the movie, I thought I'd just summarize what happens before the drama unfolds and how the movies end. So before, humans are held as batteries against their will. Zion is a temporary refuge. The resistance secretly frees the minds that, uh, minds that reject the matrix. There's an ongoing war. Unbeknownst to Zionists, Zion is also a form of control by the machines. Zion is repeatedly destroyed and rebuilt with total loss of life. The one Neo is repeatedly located, trained, and ultimately given a meaningless mission. And the Oracle devotes a lot of energy into this mission and, and so on. And how it ends is, uh, as for those who haven't seen the movies, uh, you know, this is how, this is the, sorry about, um, what's it called should I have given a disclaimer but apologies humans are held as batteries still but uh, all minds who reject the matrix are automatically freed so that's the negotiation term if you're rejected you will be freed now Zion is a permanent refuge for those who reject the matrix now there is peace between humanity humans and the machines humans in well humans are the ones in this case the ones who live in in Zion, more and more people uh, end up free outside the matrix, likely leading to some rebuilding of civilization, uninfluenced by the matrix, Zion is not destroyed, and the Oracle has a lot of time to bake lots of cookies. So the reason I say this is because she's shown baking cookies in all movies, all the three movies, and she takes it as a pursuit of pleasure, something to do while everything is collapsing. Uh, and I think that's where it'll leave us till we get to the fourth movie. Maybe the civilization is going to be rebuilt and we'll see what happens in movie four. That's all folks, Looney Tunes, thank you.
I'm sure you will all join me in uh, thanking Osho for a fabulous talk. The, the movies are worth revisiting and the ideas are now definitely worth uh, discussing. To access other videos and podcasts in this series, go to the Philosophy Resources section of the Rational Realm website at www.rationalrealm.com. Thank you.